Welcome to another episode of the Blue Coats Brass Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Cresty, and today joining us is Brass Caption Head Derek Gibson, Brass Supervisor Dave McKinnon, and DCI Hall of Famer and Blue Coats Brass Ranger Doug Thrower. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Great, great. Real good, Bob. Good to hear your voices. Awesome. So, Dave, since this is your first time on the podcast, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your history with the Blue Coats? Sure. First of all, Doug was the one that invited me to come on staff in 1994. We had known each other, I guess, since the mid-80s. He taught a, a drum corps from Peterborough, Ontario, called the Canadian Knights, and I taught an all-girl corps from Kitchener uh, called the Ventures. And uh, so the, I think maybe the first time I actually spoke to Doug was when I judged the Canadian Knights one year. Um, and I always had a lot of respect for what he did, not only in terms of the arranging, but just the what he could get the sounds he can get out of his brass section. One thing, I'm not sure if a lot of people know this about Doug, but when he was with the Canadian Knights for many years, he was arranging the brass charts, teaching the brass line, as well as marching at the same time. So that was uh, unique in the activity that I actually could actually get all that work done and uh, still participate. Anyways, moving on, uh, he invited me in 1994 and I did part of the summer. And, and back then staffs tended to do a lot more of the tour, which I re- I've come to realize that's not necessarily the most healthy thing mentally to do. But <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in 95, uh, uh, you were still the brass caption head, right, Doug, at 95? Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, um, Bill Hamilton was the director. Doug was the uh, brass caption head, and I was a tech pretty much doing the baritones uh, for a number of years. And then when Doug moved into the role of writing, uh, I was kind of moved into the role of caption head and then eventually co-caption head with George Wozniak. And uh, that kind of starts started the process up until when uh, Derek and Emery Craig came on board. Uh, what, was that 2011, Derek? 12. 12. Okay. Yeah, the years tend to run together. And over, over the last number of years, um, I've had made the decision to step back a little bit from the actual teaching of the brass section and let the people that should be in front of the line do so. And I thought that was a healthy move uh, for the Blue Coats. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of step back and look at the product a little bit more globally. So I really enjoy my aspect of it now. And I've always really embraced the opportunity to watch people teach, watch good teachers work. Um, When I was teaching the all-girl drum corps for my stint of 17 years there, we were fortunate enough to do a lot of the open, or the back then it was called open class. It's what's called world class shows now on the East Coast with uh, the Garfield Cadets, Twenty Seven Lancers, Boston Crusaders, Spirit of Atlanta, uh, and not a lot of the smaller A cores had that opportunity. So we were always on early. So I would go to the parking lot after our performance and just watch different cores warm up, and I really enjoyed that process, and it opened my eyes a lot because it allowed me without any criticism uh, by anyone to determine, Oh, I really like what they're doing. I think that works well. And maybe utilize some of those techniques down the road or say, well, I don't know that that's as, as successful as 
what's intended. So I really enjoy that process. And to this day, I still do. Awesome. Doug, can you tell us a little bit about your history with the Blue Coats? Yeah, I came on board um, in the fall of 91. I had just finished. Uh, I was I was still in school. And the whole time I was in school, I was also teaching um, the Dutch boy from Kitchener, Ontario. I did them for four years. Um, it felt like 14. <laughs> uh, and 91 was like a just awful experience, terrible experience. <laughs> and I decided uh, on finals night that I was just going to focus on school and go back to school. And Ted Swaldo called me. You know, Ted at the time was still the core director of the Blue Coats. He's our benefactor now, kind of. Uh, he called me and said, would you come down and teach the Blue Coats horn line? And I said, no, <laughs> but I will, because uh, I'm, because like I said, the summer before was just dismal and I really knew nothing about the blue coats um, other than having them seem, I, I may have seen them warm up a couple of times in Bristol, Rhode Island. And I knew that the horn program was pretty strong. So, but I told him I, I, I would love to come down for a weekend just to have a look and get a feel for how the organization was run because that was the problem at Dutch Boy was the back room was just a mess. So, so uh, he flew me down and he picked me up at the airport and that was like, oh, we'll put that in the pros column. That's cool. I got picked up at the airport. That's never happened before. <laughs> 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 and then uh, he showed me around. They had just gotten their new, uh, the first version of the cook truck, which is very similar to what we have now. Um, it was a predecessor of what we have now and the new equipment truck. And of course that just, you know, blew my mind. And he was so proud and he was involved in everything to do with the drum corps. And uh, right away, I could see that people were treated with a lot of respect, uh, especially the students were treated really fairly and respectfully, well taken care of, well fed. And uh, by the end of the weekend, I decided, you know, I think I'd like to do this. You know, I was gonna focus on school, but this looks like a lot of fun. So his thinking was he knew that he would be stepping down and moving Bill Hamilton into the core director job but before the summer. He never told me this until about May. <laughs> and then in May, they made me the, the caption head of the, the brass section. So I still worked really closely with uh, Bill Hamilton, who, by the way, like uh, had a really strong program. I mean, the year they played the Duke Ellington stuff, uh, I think the horn line was six that year. It was very tidy, uh, swung like Roxanne in a kayak, but it was very tidy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I had already had a lot of respect for the brass program. And um, he, he uh, helped out that whole summer too, in addition to taking on the new role of core director, which he was, he was, you know, born to do kind of thing. So 92 was my first summer and it was uh, it was an interesting summer because the Corps wasn't doing well at the start of the summer. And I had a unique perspective because I was coming from a group that had come 13th three times out of four years that I was there. And uh, for me, just the fact that we were getting down the road safely and the kids were rehearsing well and we were fed, I, I had a great summer. It was really fun. So. So that was 28 years ago. <laughs> I've been here ever since. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I started writing in 97. I started writing. Bruce McConnell was the arranger when Dave and I were first here. 
really, really bright guy and uh, interesting guy. I could look, sit down and talk about any one of those guys would have a paper in the morning and read through most of it and disagree with it. <laughs> but he would, uh, he was a fascinating guy and I took over for him in 97. Awesome. So as we mentioned in our last episode, we started a contest to determine the fan favorite Bluecoats ballad. And we had nearly 1,800 votes during the seeding round to create the top 16. And so we've taken those results to make a bracket, which you'll be able to see on the podcast website. And um, you can also get to it by clicking the link in the episode description for this episode. So you'll be able to see the schedule for all of the voting for each round and then for the final round of voting, which will occur towards what would have been the very end of the season. You'll be able to vote all the way until basically when finals would have been announced on Saturday night, August 8th. So whichever ballot ends up winning, we are planning to make part of our encore rotation for the 2021 season. So in this episode of the podcast, we're going to start breaking down the bracket and hearing from Derek, Dave, and Doug about their thoughts on some of the matchups, as well as share any stories or or fun little tidbits about any of those years or specific songs or anything else that may be of interest to the listeners out there. So each bracket, as we said, we broke things down to the the trumpets uh, division, the mellow division, the bluthberry division, and the tuba division. And each one starts with four different ballads that will end up competing against one another. And so for this first round, we'll have a, a total of four different matchups with eight different ballads in both the, the trumpet and mellow divisions. And uh, so we're going to start digging into some of that now. So the very first matchup we have here is in the trumpet division, we have 2014, the Hymn of Axiom, against 2009, Sky Blue. So I know uh, Dave and Doug, you guys are around for both of those. Derek, you're around for one of those. Who's, uh, who's got some fun stories to share? Well, Sky Blue uh, was kind of a, a no-brainer for the Imagine show. Not a no-brainer as a choice, but I, I, I thought of it because Michael had already come up with this concept with the cloud shirts. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a costume change back then uh, towards the end of the show where they got out of their traditional blue coach jacket and they were wearing uh, cloud like shirts with clouds all over them, kind of almost like the album cover of John Lennon's Imagine. So I had been listening to Maria Schneider's album, Sky Blue, uh, there's similar kind of colors on her album cover. And the, the tune itself is just really, especially for her stuff, very, very simple chorale to begin with. Um, really beautifully voiced. And uh, it just seemed appropriate for the show. And I we were, I can't recall where we were, but um, it was Tim Fairbanks and uh, Michael Gray and I and Tom. And we were talking ballad and I played it. And Michael was like, that's it. I mean, that's just beautiful. That's perfect. It's like, I don't know if you're familiar with the tune, but it's a very straightforward, simple little tune. And she was really gracious about it. Like most of the good people are like, we got in touch with her directly and she gave us her blessing to do it. Uh, Yamaha actually lent us 16 flugelhorns because it's written for flugel. And the second and third trumpets actually played most of the main melodies because they were on the flugel parts. And I left the eight leads on trumpet for the entire piece. And they actually didn't even contribute it till about maybe two thirds of the way through the piece. It was a nice rest for them. <laughs> so, uh, and I have to tell you, I mean, it was one of those arrangements. I, I, hate, I don't even want to use the word arrangement because I had the chart. She sent me the chart 
And other than I took it up a tone because she has it in G flat. <laughs> I was like, eh, there's not a brass guy in the world that's going to love me for doing that, you know. So <laughs> I pulled it up uh, to A flat and it kind of warmed it up a little bit and opened it up a little bit. I learned so much from that chart because just the way she uses voicings, like she'll go from, especially the low brass, uh, she'll have everybody, you know, in a kind of a, a kind of a tight, not a, not a dissonant, but a, I wouldn't use the word dissonant, but a closed voicing and then literally open it up, you know, where the bottom euphonium part was almost, you know, uh, beneath the staff kind of thing. And I thought, you know, I can't improve on, on Maria Schneider. You know, I'm just going to follow the lead here. And I voiced it almost exactly the same way um, until the very end of the chart. And then you can kind of hear the pageantry slowly creep into it. You know, So we had to, we had to finish it with a bang. So um, I thought that, I thought the tune worked well and the kids played it really well. It was nice. That was the first time we actually used a, a, like a full section switching instruments. Tim Fairbanks actually, you know, the, the the big concern is we go through this every year with John, you know, is the logistics of just getting a kid to another horn and switching, you know, and allowing the time without people like hurting to, you know, a scrim or something like that. Right. They, like there has to be an eloquent way. John's a genius at it, by the way. And I always like tell him, like, I'm so sorry, but maybe if we save, he's like, don't worry about it. Just write it the way you want it. We'll figure it out kind of thing. That was the first time we had to do it. And Tim actually did a nice job with it too. It was only 16 kids. So Maria Schneider contacted us afterwards and shared an email that she had sent to her entire band and, and a whole bunch of her friends. So there was this, this A-list of musicians. I got the email. There's all these like real heavies. And then at the bottom, me. <laughs> and all these guys, and she was sharing a video of us rehearsing and performing the piece because she was really moved by it. And she... We actually sent her one of our one of those cloud shirts. Um, awesome. Her, uh, I think her fiance at the time had asked for one, so we sent her a cloud shirt. So she was really gracious about it. It was a, a pretty tune. That's pretty awesome. Tune. That was a, that was probably a little more long winded. Did you want it, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, hymn of axiom stories? You want to go, Dave? I think, you know, as I look back and and I actually went back on, on uh, YouTube to look at some of these earlier productions, um, one of the things that comes across, I think, very often is that these ballads have strong melodic sense. The line is very well determined. Hymn of Axiom is one of those tunes that, you know, you hear the original and you just kind of go, wow, it's amazing, you know, that uh, Yana Tang does that the harmonizer and it's just you know for years this activity was uh formulaic in the sense that how the program was laid out you do a fast opener you do a second tune you do a uh, way back when a concert production and then you do the ballot and the ballot you know just a nice sounding tune but um this actually has the almost a formula to it in the sense that it has such a great great build very luscious in terms of the uh, impact of the tune, uh, what they used to call the uh, the hit. It was pretty impressive in terms of how that translated just from the hearing the original. And I think the brass section embraced it. I, I think the glucose have been fortunate for um, multiple reasons. The brass only being part of it is that they do a, a really good job of communicating 
balance. Obviously, the writing that Doug does and Tom as well, uh, complemented by the collaboration of the visual package, really helps to make it a, a total production. But I, I think it's it's uh, something that I'm very proud of, uh, partly because I think early on we made sure that we concentrated on quality of sound, that intonation, those things that are fundamental but very important. Hymn of Axiom, it, it was one of those tunes that uh, featured, starts off, featured uh, some sparse melodic material, and the kids really embraced it. It was just a gorgeous tune to work with. It was a fun tune as well, as often bouts are, maybe because they're less rhythmically active. You could really... Um, dig in on the emotional communication of it. But uh, I think it's one of those pieces that it just, it was a natural, you know, I often go back when people talk to me about the uh, Tilt show and I scratch my head and I try to figure out what, why did, was that show so well embraced? Well, there were some obviously novel things. There was a pitch band. Um, the end of the show was very enthusiastic. We had the props, um, but you have a tune like uh, Hymn of Axiom that, you know, people, you read the comments on YouTube and it's, it'll say things like, Buchholz always do a great job of communicating ballots. I think the way it was presented, too, was, was part of the success of it because uh, John had split the group into those small groups that were it was almost like an antiphonal thing. And I know it was probably a huge pain in the ass for Derek because we had, I mean, we were literally corner to corner for the, the first third <laughs> of that tune. I remember rehearsing it in Chicago. You were away that day and came back at night and uh, we had been working on just trying to get those two corners to sound in time, you know. I think that's one of the things that made it interesting, but that that was another no-brainer. Like uh, Vince Oliver pitched that. It was one of those tunes where you thought, well, what am I going to do? It's already perfect. Like we got to make it shorter, <laughs> you know. Um, it, it just sat really, and I have a really lovely note from her actually uh, on the score. It's framed from Vienna Tang because she experienced a pretty uh, major spike in sales that summer with that tune because awesome. of the drum corps performing it. And that man, the kids, like uh, finals night, that's probably one of the strongest like brass line performances of a tune in the blue coach history it was just you guys had it detailed and uh they and like dave said they embraced it and it it, it had a spontaneity to it it didn't sound over rehearsed you know or quantized yeah that was a strong one for sure very very strong very popular too yeah i was going through the in my mind just the ballads that i had the pleasure of uh you know teaching and this one might be my favorite from just a music standpoint, just the way it slightly breathed all of the shaping in it and the way we tossed the line around and the antiphonal thing. Yeah, I can remember the first time we put that together and, and Ryan Kilgore pulling his hair out how he's going to do that because it wasn't <laughs> just the melody. It was, you know, da, 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 dee, da, ba, ba, ba. But then you had this moving line of the baritones, ba, da, dee, bum. and that next attack was literally 60 yards away. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was in a different time zone. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the, the front ensemble was, was playing along with that. So it was, I, I, I could specifically, I, I can remember where the podium was and everything, like trying to make that work. Well, I, re 
I remember you at move-ins and you had literally studied the recording to the point of the inhalations, her inhalations, and you had them in the store. I probably put in one or two too many breaths. We took some out and they'll make it more like a brass player and less like a vocalist. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, no, the detailing that you did, and that was in May or June, you know, right. we had a full summer to kind of, I mean, yeah. it really was presented as if it were a choir. Um, right. Just a choir spread out all over Hell's Half Acre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun. I, I have one 09 story from the staff uh, that, are currently on our staff now that March that year, uh, Brian Warfield and Patrick Guerin, they said, first of all, Brian said, Derek, you would have hated us. <laughs> that was the first thing he said. What we used to do, one of the things we did in 09 with, with the cloud church is on the way to every show, even if it was like a 15 minute walk, the entire time the kids would go, Cloud people, cloud people, like cloud, talk like people, cloud people, over and over and over. And I was like, yep, I, I would have hated that. <laughs> the kids are, <laughs> the kids are goofy. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I've never forgotten that. <laughs> awesome. Well, the, the next matchup we have in the trumpet division is 2017's Grow Till Tall against the 1988 version of autumn leaves what do you guys think about that grow till tall was a challenge for sure uh, just in terms of how it was staged uh, and the fact that it was a long blow at fortissimo yeah like a long long time so uh i give the kids credit for just maintaining their their degree of uh intensity through that but it presented some challenges uh Acoustically, um, the idea that uh, Doug originally had didn't wasn't as successful. It uh, wasn't re received as well in terms of the amplification, and I'll let Doug kind of go into some details about that. But um, I, I, it's it's one of those tunes that relies a lot on just making sure it's produced to a really really high level, and it presented a lot of challenges, like I say just in terms of the the technical aspect of of you know having the brass in the back left corner and then communicating that long distance for such a long period of time yeah i think the original idea was uh uh we had just started with the shotgun mics i believe yep and uh well we had the shotgun mics in 16 for the octet yeah yeah we, and, we were going to try it for the whole horn line in 17 yeah. And I think I want to say it was John had this idea of a moment in the show. I don't think we knew what the stage was going to be, but we knew there was going to be some kind of separation side to side. But I still think this is a very cool idea. The idea was he would present a guard moment, a full guard moment, you know, kind of unison flag work uh, that would be accompanied by very powerful brass but you wouldn't see the brass because you were focused on the guard. So we thought we'd experiment with the shotgun mics and take the whole horn line to the back left corner and just provide a soundtrack for this beautiful visual moment. This is like, this might be the only time I remember one of his great ideas getting rounded off over time. You know how you do that to like a nut when you're trying to tighten a nut? We kind of rounded the edges off the nut <laughs> and uh, 
the idea somehow fell by the wayside and it kind of came down to the guard being in front of the brass and it might have been a focus issue i can't recall what the issue was. We, we might not have been able to get the girls over there i can't remember but it really was a challenge and it's a shame because i remember when we first read it you know it was in the same key as him of axiom i think and uh it was wide open it's a very simple tune a one four five tune you know um pretty much and when we first read it, I think we were all pretty excited about it. You know, it was uh, kind of old time drum corps. Like uh, it was a long blow, lots of staggered breathing and pacing of the crescendo was just hellacious. I recall that. And of course, you know, we really were in the early stages of working with microphones at all. You know, I think it was Josh Gall was with us uh, one weekend that I happened to be there. You were away, Derek, and we worked on that. Uh, I, I, Bob Higgins was standing like way up the hill, <laughs> with, like with the brass line facing him. And he was like trying to hit kids that were, you know, throwing barbs out, not blending within the section itself. And then of course we were up front trying to deal with kids that might've been pointed wrong at the mics picking up a particular kid. And it was just, you know, it was one of those events. It just didn't work. Um, uh, you know, with more experience and more time, I think the original idea would have worked, you know, with the whole guard on the other side of the field. It would have been kind of a cool thing. Or maybe we we, we should have done it under the stage, you know, and uh, just did it acoustically. But um, it's a pretty tune. That was another one of Vince's tunes that he came to me with like, from a uh, an album called uh, Jonesy, I think. That's the um, name of the guy. He's, yeah. uh, I'm going to get the uh, pronunciation probably wrong, but. Uh, he he's uh, the front man for uh, Sugar Ross. Right, uh, right. I'm pronouncing that wrong, but yeah, yeah. Uh, great uh, Icelandic band. Yeah. Well, see, that's that's just happened with the foreign stuff, right? We just can't <laughs> pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the first time we did it, uh, like we we set up the mics and played the tune to the back with just the brass. It sounded amazing, and everyone was sold on it. Yeah, when it was combined with everything else, it didn't always have the same impact. And I, and I'm not sure what your thoughts, Doug, were, was on. You know, the I never thought the battery contribution underneath the stage helped. Yeah, that was another uh, uh, like another cool idea that yeah. ended up confusing the audience. Yeah, um, yeah, because they were hidden. Right, and. Uh, it was one of those things that it kind of reinforces the thought that the activity works best when you're seeing what you hear. Yeah. And we kind of tried to do a little sleight of hand and reverse that. Right. And, and like I said, like maybe if the, you know, the color guard thing had been the way we originally planned it, it might've been a neat effect. Yeah. You know, it would have been similar to the pitch band and then people would have been going, well, wait, where's the music? I didn't even notice that the horn line was way over there because I was watching the color guard. That was kind of the original intent. And But as a tune, I mean, it was a pretty tune. It was a challenge in terms of just uh, physicality and su- sustaining uh, the power. And, uh, and then you build in all those other <laughs> difficult elements that we were not familiar with yet. Uh, just uh, like, uh, like as teachers, the guys that were doing the sound, of course, knew what they were doing. But um, that was a new experience for me, you know. The other challenge is it took us about took us half the season to, to figure out what instrument to put the soloist on. I think it's Jeremy Hunter's his last name. Anyway, I, I want to make it. A, I still want to apologize to him for you know yeah. putting him on the actual marching instrument 
halfway through the season. That's what he signed right. in the best on. Yeah. Um, oh, a hell of a player. Yeah. Yeah, a great and, player. Um, I wanted to do Grow Till Tall last year as an encore because, again, the most emotion I've ever felt from it was the first time we did it, just an art face in the front, standing still. Yep. And I wanted the audience to experience that without us turning around because it was pretty controversial. To people, a lot of people just, I think the reason why we turned around for the last chord was just to, you know, kind of uh, appease some of the, some fans. And I wanted to kind of give it to them like that as an encore. And a lot of people on my staff, there's so much, um, it was a difficult season. You know, there, there, yeah. there's, there's there's people on the staff, including me, that have a little bit of PTSD about that season. Like, no, we don't want to play <laughs> anything to do with that year at all. Uh, right, uh, right. We won't do it. Yeah. Haven't talked much about well, 88, but I don't know much about 88 automotives, <laughs> honestly. Is that yeah. the faster version, Doug? That was the, se- the second version. Yeah. And I was, it wasn't uh, Kirshner. It was, uh, oh, it was Frank Doherty? It was Frank Doherty, yeah, wrote the original arrangement of Autumn Leaves, the one that got him into finals. And that was like the second incarnation of it. Very similar, I believe. Mm-hmm. Soloist, you know, the the corral was very similar. You know, I wasn't like I was on tour with Dutch that year. I don't remember the blue the blue they were always on before us. Um, so I didn't I don't have much experience. I know how much the tune Autumn Leaves means to the kids, even today, you know considered the core song but obviously i mean frank did a really good job with that arrangement especially the uh i think that like that the cut time you know i think it's based on a i want to say um what's what's uh maynard's old lead player Stan stan mark it might be based on a stan mark arrangement or another i i think i have that wrong but it's based on another arrangement and uh, I mean, obviously, it was kind of perfect for that time in the activity, that arrangement. If it beats uh, the Josie tune, then we know we, we screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get on to the Melophone bracket, let's hear from some of our sponsors real quick. Ammon Design is the exclusive mouthpiece manufacturer for the Bluecoats. Carl Hammond is recognized by players all over the world for his commitment to excellence through superior craftsmanship and professionalism. That's why Bluecoats trust Hammond and why we feel you should get the experience of sound in HD. Visit carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, hammonddesign.com. This podcast is funded in part by the sustaining members of The Shield. The Shield is a monthly giving society dedicated to protecting the future of Bluecoats. Donors give monthly and support Bluecoats programs, and as a thank you, they receive insider access to content and special events. To become a sustaining member, visit bluecoats.com slash the shield. All right, and we're back. So now let's get into the Melophone division, and we have 2018 Cerro against 1977, their first full year in DCI, Bridge Over Troubled Water. I was born that year, so I got nothing on 77. Well, Cerro was a beautiful tune. Um, it had a couple defining features in it that I think were unique to the activity Um I don't know where that came from. It might have been you, Derek. Didn't you find it? On, uh, no, 
It's, I can't remember. It's from the West release. I don't know who came. Yeah. I don't know who, who came up with that. I listened to it a whole bunch. It's always a great, a great group. I don't know much about them, but yeah, they play. I've heard a couple of their albums. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's, and it's really intimate and musical stuff. Uh, it's a traditional like folk tune. I, I want to say from Scotland. I could have that completely wrong, but definitely Europe. And uh, what I remember most about it is just the trio at the beginning, because. I, I got a whole bunch of emails from people going, you know, I really love the show. You got to get rid of that trio at the beginning. Uh, and I was like, that's the best part of the show. You know, just the intimacy and especially following everything we had just done um, with the blues tune and uh, just starting with that one kid and then adding a couple kids. I think that was the defining feature of it. The soloists were great. All three of those kids really wanted those soloists. Um, Justin Cohen, I believe, was a second trumpet that year, was he not? Yeah. I don't think he played lead that year. No, he wasn't a lead. He's never been a lead. He's played third a couple of years. I think he was second that year. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I remember him being really hungry for that solo. And then, of course, uh, Max played the trombone. And I, to, to me, I, I love that moment because no other drum corps that year sounded like that for that moment. You know, it was very different and it, and it had a logical build and it was quite an emotional tune for me. I think Tom was a big factor, too, because he finally added some ride cymbal. <laughs> I always add ride cymbals to my initial uh, <laughs> arrangements for him. They ne the ride cymbal part never shows up. And in Sorrow, he had all this wonderful stuff and it was it really elevated it. And the kids, you know, they were they were put under like enormous physical and geographical challenges in that tune as well, because not only were they spread out all over the place, but they were carrying chairs while they did the impact of that of that and moving furniture around. And uh, I remember at the beginning of the summer, people being not particularly pleased <laughs> yeah. about that idea, but but the overall effect I think was was well worth it in the long run. And again, and again, that tune was very well rehearsed in the kids. I think my favorite rendition of that was Finals Morning. At rehearsal, I was standing on the front sideline and I just uh, uh, burst into tears because it was just, again, so spontaneous and it clicked and there were, you could really feel the emotion from the kids on the field. That's that's actually one of my favorites by far. Mm -hmm. It's also a ballad at 180. Yeah, it's not a ballad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But it had, that, you know, it was, it was like a jazz waltz kind of feel to it. Yeah, you know? no. it was, and it was, people were, people were running, playing lyrical stuff. I mean, yeah. all that. Um, that was all lip slurs. Uh huh. <laughs> that know? was tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it, the, the trick was they were moving at one eighty, but it had to feel like it was sixty. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, yep. And. Uh, Again, yeah, you know, they really rose. I think they liked that one too. I remember when we first read that one too. It was a real emotional time, and yeah. um, all those interweaving lines and stuff made it kind of interesting. And I thought it presented the mellophones really well. Yeah, and bringing back in the the, the vocal soloists at the end of that really right cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The fact that that production um, start uh, the form of it was really well laid out terms of just the lyrical small group material at the beginning and then the rhythmic vitality provided by the trumpets through the eighth note lines and that carried on through and as we led to the final or the uh, the big 
impact where the mellophones have this sweeping sailing line that that act, rhythmic activity really drew you in it was really well done in terms of design i think it was another tune that the kids really had fun with and embraced and and, and really bought into the fact that they could play this and communicate it with a, a high degree of sincerity that was one of those moments like ensemble wise how do we stay together with the beginning you know it's coming out of the trio into justin arpeggiating on the bottom of the horn with the tuba playing kind of far away this kind of uh, three against two jazz waltz kind of feel with the ride cymbal in the front ensemble that was one where we had to like especially the tubas be able to play at 180 without relying on the conductor basically because you didn't have enough time to really kind of react. You just had to breathe and go. And, you know, we got to where we could start the tune. We used to do this in singing. Start the tune at at 180 and not conduct. And I would just listen to the metronome and cut them off whenever they got off the metronome with no conductor. And eventually we could go through the entire chart without me having to cut them off or getting off the metronome. And that was the only way we could really stay together with that is just, all the entire horn line is like, okay, one, two, here's 180, play, boom, and you just go. Because yeah. the reaction time, trying to you know react to anything the conductor's doing, if things are falling apart, was was too slow. You said the name. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, sometimes that's the best way. It's whole time, you know. That's the so, best way. Yeah. Sounds simple, but and the tubas were back there. I mean, kids were buying yeah. funnel cakes in Allentown. How so far back <laughs> yeah. they were, man. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anybody got thoughts on 77? And Oh, I do know that's the first core song is Bridge Over Troubled Water. Yeah. That was very emotional for those, for the, all the Blue Coats alumni from the 70s. And um, was it 2012 was our 40th anniversary, right? Yeah. yeah we started in 72. Um, we learned Bridge Over Troubled Water for our, we've played this for an encore and it was from 2012. I think we only played it once or twice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, and, I, it, and we didn't fight the alumni and Maslin or wherever it was. And there were some people that were like really emotional about it that, you know, sure. we were surprised because yeah. we yeah. kind of only know autumn leaves. It's funny how the tunes get attached to memories, you know, and to, uh, to groups and become the thing, you know, <laughs> Obviously, it's a strong tune. I think we're probably going to end up using it for the alumni for the performance in a couple of years. So, yeah. but I, I have no recollection of the Blue Coats playing it. Um, I had just gotten out of the army and was trying to, you know, <laughs> get my act together. So, I'm not sure they were in they were in the finals that year, were they? Or were they? No. Okay. Yeah. First, where the court made finals was '87. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah, I wish I could speak more to that, but yeah. All right. Well, the the next matchup we have is one that all of you have been around for. 2019's Blackbird against the 2013 Spring from the River Suite. What do we got there? Two great ones. Yeah. Go ahead, Derek. <laughs> I was going to say I, I I don't think 13 gets in. I'm, I'm afraid 13's going to lose. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. But uh, it, it doesn't get enough love. You know, it's from Duke Ellington's 
orchestral repertoire, which when you think of Duke Ellington, you don't think of classical music, but it is classical music written yeah. by Duke Ellington. And he wrote a couple of those, Black, Brown, and Beige is one of them. This is from the River Suite. Yeah. I had never heard of it. I, he I had heard of Black, Brown, and Beige, but I'd never heard of the River Suite before I taught it. And I remember listening to it the first time going, geez, this is beautiful. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it don't, you don't learn, you know, I didn't learn about this in musicology, music history class, and I should have, you know. For one thing, those bleachers, it was harder than it looks to balance. Yeah. You know, and most of our kids, when they're playing in bleachers, are playing Land of a Thousand Dances back home. They're not trying to sound like an orchestra. And uh, it was really hard to get them to blend and balance and not sound like a pet band standing and moving around on bleachers because they're playing to each other's ear. And then the tubas were in the front, so we couldn't really listen back to tubas. I really loved cleaning that piece and making that musical. The the the, the melodic line too is very uh, angular, but still lyrical. And it yeah. was put, you know, it's in the lead trumpet. So the lead trumpets are doing six and seventh skips, and it was it was it was uh, it was a tough one. It had a real soaring soaring kind of quality to it. That melody it was yeah really really pretty. Yeah, it was fun to work with. But you guys were far back there on those bleachers. I remember getting a lot of complaints about that from the judging community. Uh, it just it made it more difficult to communicate. But that was a kind of a cool moment and a cool set. And uh, obviously fun to play some Duke Ellington. Dave, any thoughts on 2013? Um, no, not really. I do remember a lot just the working or at least uh, being there while uh, the material on the bleachers was being worked. Um, and Derek is right. I mean, we all know that the further you move something back, the easier it is to identify those individual blemishes that shoot up, but to actually find out that who that particular person is, is, is really challenging. Um, so all you can do is say, hey, okay, Melophone's in around the, try and make sure that you don't, and try it again. And historically, when working ballots, you run the risk of, you know, the kids uh, after a while, maybe if you're working a section for 10, 15 minutes and just repeating it and trying to tweak it, they run the risk of it getting ballot head. And you can sense where emotionally they just kind of start to sag a little bit. It's not like they don't care. It's just that, you know, it's it's a tedious process. It's It's a necessary process, obviously to fine tune it. But I remember that specifically the amount of detailing that that tune took on the bleachers to get to the point where you can say, okay, that's what we're after now. Now let's keep it that way. And that's always a challenge in itself. Yeah. That was a hard show. That was my first year as the caption head. And um, my first year, I mean, kids that I know that have marched that year, they'll tell me, that was the hardest year that I marched. That marched multiple years around it. Uh, the electric counterpoint. It's the first time the Blue Coats really marched at 192 for longer than two minutes, and we were there for two minutes. It was rough. Um, so that that was underrated show in 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 my view. Thirteen. Yeah, and then uh, that's going up against this past season, 2019's Blackbird. Well, that was a popular one for sure. And it's uh, in terms of choice, I think it was a no brainer just because it's so simple. And uh, uh, like the original thought for, for me was I wanted it to be um, 
there's a famous Picasso that's just three three lines, and it actually illustrates a female's posterior. <laughs> but it's so simple and so eloquent and so beautiful. And that's for me. That's what I wanted Blackbird to be, and that's how it started. As just the simple lines, you know, the euphoniums would come in on their descending lines. And the harmony's so strong, the guide tones just create these wonderful little counter melodies for you, um, which you can hear in the guitar in the original. And I just, I just really wanted it to be kind of an intimate, uh, like a a new way of doing the ballad, you know, kind of thing, and keep it almost like the beginning of sorrow. Keep it that simple and that uh, intimate and that honest and like right down to the foot taps, you know, which you can hear on the original recording, McCartney's tap in his boot. Um, they, they appear in the tune. And then of course at move in, she sort of realized, well, this, this could be a little bit of a dud if we don't build a, you know, a bigger impact into it. So it kind of, it kind of became almost, I don't want to say an imitation, but at the end of it was almost like the boxer and it was an acapella strong brass moment, you know, which took some coaxing to, to get me to do. <laughs> but John can be very convincing, as you know. <laughs> so, uh, and I think it worked out okay. Like, I think it was, especially the way, uh, the way Jim presented uh, the dancer uh, at the climax of the tune. I mean, and if, if you know the backstory of the tune and the, you know, uh, the history of the tune, which a lot of people did, you know, a lot of people in the judging community mentioned that on their uh, commentary, you know, this, that, that it wasn't lost on them, what we were, who we were presenting and how we were presenting them. And I think the tune worked really well. I, again, I think the kids, you know, rose to the occasion, played it really well. I mean, I remember being worried about the flugel at first because there's a real high note that's exposed you know and it's just yeah it, it, it's a trap right waiting to happen and uh and man did he ever rise to the occasion that was I, I do recall dean like trying to talk me into like snapping that off that loud chord you know to get a bit of applause and then have the soloist play and i was like ah, everybody does that man like i so i dug my heels in on, on, on that one because i just loved that flugel sound coming out of that loud ensemble brass sound and i thought i thought that was like the highlight of the piece actually and uh that's a favorite that one's a favorite for sure yeah there's a lot of exposure in there i mean that's that was one of the really the only one that i've gotten to dig in on the teaching side during my time here and um you know right off the bat i remember when we first started looking at this and the the tuba entrance right at the very beginning of it going uh up to the d above the staff and i'm like what and yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. no, we got it. And, and and Richard was great up there, you know, and, but yeah, just showing off that, you know, tubas can play really high too, you know? Yeah. Well, there's yeah. a lot of things like that in the tune where, and then I think because the performance was so strong, people didn't realize that that was just the tubas, you know? Yeah. And it, it was high and it was low and then, man, they nailed it. And then there's a couple other moments where, a descending line in the euphoniums would, would get handed over to the tubas. That was one of my favorite spots. And you guys had that to the point where it was just right at the right, you know, at the breaking point where timbres start to, you know, change, but they're very similar between the two sections. And that was seamless by the end of the summer. I loved, that was one of those things that nobody notices, but I thought that was just awesome. And of course the keyboard accompaniment was wonderful too can't remember his last name, but Andy, Brass Judge, Carmel, Indiana. Somebody help me out. Andy Cook. 
Yeah, he, he definitely caught it right away. Oh, yeah. The field. The tubas uh, <laughs> playing. He, I think he even called the notes. Is that a, is that a high D? Like, yep. Right. Yeah. He's, he's like looking around for a euphonium player playing, and all the euphoniums have their horns down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that that was done on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the shout chorus of that thing too, I thought was beautiful, and it it didn't have the same energy as boxer, but it didn't it wasn't really supposed to. I know John wanted to compare it to the boxer. It's not yeah. the boxer, but man, it's an awesome moment. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that I think you wrote an extra chord uh, at one point before the. Justin Solo. Anyway, I, that that tension before the the high C and the flugelhorn was, yeah, was minor awful. nine, minor nine. Chord, yeah. yeah, and then yeah. um, Justin and the, the way we kind of worked with Justin was um, he was allowed to miss every warm up during spring training to go warm up on his flugelhorn, and he couldn't show up to brass block until he played that dee da da dee da da dee da da. Ten times in a row with no cracks. <laughs> <laughs> so if you shut up the brass block halfway through a four-hour block, fine. It's still yeah, yeah. It's still time worth doing it. Yeah. So. Oh, he 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 played he played great finals week. I thought. Yeah. Well, that will go ahead and uh, wrap up this part of voting for the mellophone and trumpet divisions of round one. And voting is now available online at b-l-u-c-o-dot-a-t slash ballad1a. And if you don't want to listen to all that again, you can either go to the Bluecoats Brass Podcast webpage or just click on the link in the episode description. Voting for this round will close at 10 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, May 24th. So please get out there and vote for this round. Well, thanks to Derek, Doug, and Dave for sharing their thoughts and stories on this half of the bracket. Be sure to vote and then listen to the rest of the discussion on the other half of the bracket on the next Bluecoats Brass Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Bluecoats Brass Podcast. Please tell your friends about our podcast and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any topics you'd like to suggest or questions for us to answer in future episodes, please email us at brasspodcast at bluecoats.com. You can catch us on Instagram at bluecoats or at bluebrass, spelled B-L-O-O brass. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle bluecoats. To learn more about the Bluecoats organization and all of its offerings, visit us on the web at bluecoats.com. Our podcast is made possible in part from the support of Hammond Design, the official mouthpiece designer and manufacturer of the Bluecoats Drum and Bugle Corps. As a performance partner of the Bluecoats, we trust HD with our sound, and we think you should too. Learn more at carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, hammonddesign.com. <laughs>